Well, welcome to FinTech Impact. I'm your host, Jason Pereira. Today on the show, I have James Rockman, founder and CEO of Cap Intel. Cap Intel is an investment analytics company that not only tells you how your performance looked like, but also does all kinds of proposal building, automation, team collaboration tools that basically really kind of reduce the heavy lifting and basically let us go back to focusing more time on what matters. And that's the one-on-one time with our clients. And with that, here's my interview with James. James, thanks for taking the time. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Oh, my pleasure. So James Rockwood of Cap Intel, tell us about Cap Intel. Thanks. So Capintel is a investment comparison and proposal platform for financial advisors. What we do is help them organize how they present and pitch investment products to their customers. And so really it's around understanding what products have I shown a client, tracking things like their risk profile and some compliance work, really easily comparing investment products and being able to access the data. So combining things into portfolios, breaking them apart, doing head-to-head product comparisons, really being able to access the financial data in a way and play with it in a way that hasn't been available today. And then creating really compelling and captivating proposal material so you can feel like very professional, very excited when you're in front of clients. And they're going to be able to look at some information, not too much data so they're overwhelmed, but not, um, not so little that they don't understand to be able to really strike that balance and have super meaningful conversations with the clients around financial products. Excellent. I have a bunch of questions to unpack from there. But before we go there, tell me about the history. How did this get started? What was the opportunity you saw? And and how's the journey gone? Yeah, great question. So I started the company on July 4th, uh, 2017. And back then I was in investment banking at KPMG and their corporate finance group. Before then, I'm a chartered accountant um, and an auditor. So in other words, I hadn't been in uh, wealth or around wealth management, but I like was so hearing- many of the founders on this podcast. Don't worry about it. <laughs> That's awesome. I feel like now I've been in it for for four and a half years. It's different, but um, before I hadn't, and I uh, heard a lot about robo advice, and there was a ton of media and a ton of coverage about the changing financial advisory landscape. And I thought to myself, you know, there could be opportunity here for something else that maybe just helps people understand financial products, and so. I had this idea initially for a Trivago for mutual funds and ETFs. Um, and so I quit my job with a terrible company name. Uh, we were called Bazaar Investment Market. And we were the Trivago for mutual funds and ETFs. And I, uh, I went into a self-directed investor conference, met some financial advisors, and told them about what we were doing. And they said, hey, like, it's actually really hard to look at this data today. It's very difficult hard to show clients this type of information. Can we use your Trivago tool for our clients? And so again, my heart of heart, I knew I was a B2B guy and I decided to drop the direct-to-consumer Trivago idea and started working with financial advisors. And then really, it's just been about interviewing people, understanding their pain points, and then building products to try to help solve some of the most acute pain points around investment products. Yeah. Well, especially in the investment world, I will say that I've seen a number of things targeted specifically the DIY market, which is, of course, a D2C, D2C uh, play. And uh, it's always a lot easier to gain traction, foothold, and and people paying you if you're a B2B player or enterprise play in this space. So it makes a lot of sense. And frankly, we're the ones who st- spend all day staring at it, right? Like, I don't care if you are a DIYer, you shouldn't be spending all day looking at this stuff, right? It's, you should have other things to do in your life. Otherwise, become your job. So let's let's go through a typical workflow. So I'm an advisor. I want to, I've got my portfolio that I've developed. I want to demonstrate to a new prospect or client basically what that looks like. First of all, take me through the first piece of how do I get my portfolio into your system? And then what kind of analysis can I do in it? And then what kind of output am I looking at? Yeah, great question. So um, Capintel has a sort of product management component. So you can build in your models in this model tab 
So you know, okay, this is a product I tend to use or portfolio I want to recommend often. Uh, maybe I'll have the portfolio with slightly different allocations depending on risk tolerance, but you'll organize it the way that you organize it. Um, you can build that into Cap and Tell just by entering in the codes, um, the fund tickers, and then the allocations. And then you'll get that client's or that prospect, sorry, statement. And so you'll want to say, okay, what are they holding today? You want to then create a portfolio, build out what that is in that contact, and then replicate it. You click compare. Our platform will instantly calculate all the different types of metrics. So we've done a lot of research on what are the most important metrics, what are the most common metrics? How do we not overwhelm you to give you sort of data overload? Because that's a huge issue with advisors today. There's so many variables to look at. And so it sort of follows a bit of a hierarchy where it starts with just a really high-level pervasive view. What's my return? How much risk am I taking to achieve that return? What does it cost my client? The sort of three most important initial data points that advisors want to see. As you scroll down the page, we then get into sort of performance information, asset allocation information, risk profile, top 10 holdings. And then further down, further down you go, you can get into more detailed stuff like style, fixed income maturity breakdown, quite kind of detailed and complex information. When you're happy and you're satisfied that you've built an argument that says, maybe I'm minimizing costs for the client, maybe I'm minimizing risk, providing better return, or a combination of those, you'll then create a presentation where you can kind of add in or remove different data points that you think are really relevant. So if it's, say, you're pitching a CFA or an accountant or an engineer, you're probably going to want to provide them a lot of data because those profiles of clients tend to love looking at all the data. If it's somebody who has less sophistication with finance and they can be more easily overwhelmed, you'll probably create a simpler presentation so that they can understand the recommendation you're making without having to go through really complex metrics like I don't know, Sortino ratio or something that would just be a concept they wouldn't necessarily understand. Yeah, too often people in the industry focus on just demonstrating how smart they are to the client as opposed to just speaking their language. So, which which brings me to the first question around the visualizations. So again, you're talking about very clean, simplified reporting. That must have been a challenge. Like basically being able to strike the right balance between informative and easily digestible is is an art in itself. You know, there's an old uh, there's an old Mark Twain quote of I want to, uh, I wanted to write you a short letter, but I didn't have time, so wrote you a long one. And it's just you know a <laughs> testament to the to simplicity in itself is a beautiful art that's difficult. As I take a very long rambling explanation of this, but the point is is that like what did you what was the thought process or the experimentation or what did you go through to try to figure out okay how do we best represent this and, and summarize you know, really important stuff down to the simplest bare bones and make this digestible to what I refer to as the grandma test. Like, can my grandma understand this? Yeah, those are really good questions. And I'd agree, it's, it's really difficult. You know, I think for a company our size, we probably have quite a large design team. Um, we've always been very product driven as well. So we've, we've always had um, a very, very large group of, of software developers and designers to try to master that. And I'd, I'd say we're, we're close. We're not where we want to be yet, but we're getting there. And I think we're uh, in a really, really good position relative to the market. The way we did it is by talking to both financial advisors and retail customers. That retail investor experience is so important, especially when it comes to simplifying information. The large part about selling financial products and a financial advisory relationship is it's a trust-based relationship, which means as an advisor, you really want to strike the balance between um, showing somebody credible information and explaining your thoughts without overwhelming them. Because especially when it comes to the math component, people have different levels of understanding. And so if they're looking at a hypothetical return chart 
that can be really intuitive to some people. It can be very confusing and scary to others. And when you're talking about their life savings and very, very important milestones in their life, like sending a kid to school or buying a house or retiring on time, they rightly so have a, a, a reasonable amount of inherent anxiety in that. And so working with both and trying to understand what does the advisor need most of the time? And then what does the retail client, what resonates with them the most? Um, for example, instead of giving them a table of percentages, you can give them a pie chart because that's easier to understand for most people, more visual. That's, I think, how we came up with that balance is really trying to interview the different stakeholders and understand how do we convey this? How do we help you convey this information, establish trust, not confuse the client? And then also, how do we not leave you without the key data you need to make your own analysis and recommendation? Because as you'll know, Jason, most advisors deal with tons of different metrics and data, and they have these complex reasons for why they recommend fund A versus fund B or portfolio A versus portfolio B. And then they need to pare it down to the pass the grandma test. So you want to make sure you're not leaving either stakeholder group wanting. Great. So one of the things we talked about earlier before we went on air was how you feel you support a kind of shift towards holistic and comprehensive wealth management. Can you speak to how you feel you enable that? Yeah, that's a great question. So, I mean, we're big proponents of holistic wealth management. To be explicit, we, we consider it to be looking beyond um, the traditional role of a financial advisor where you are uh, managing investments solely into the more modern interpretation of a financial advisor where you are the quarterback of many different elements of somebody's life. Financial goals are not met with a single financial product. It's definitely a combination of financial products, you know, mixture of investments, insurance, real estate planning, all over the place, you're looking at different elements. And a lot of advisors are doing, I think, a pretty good job of trying to provide a more com comprehensive service offering to their customers. Today, we're helping around the investment component of that by trying to help you stay super organized, help you get back up to speed with a client so you can see a history of all the different comparisons you've made for that client, all the different products and presentations you've shown them. So if you're coming back in for a meeting or if it's a prospect you only met once, and or twice, and you had a presentation, you can easily pull that back up to see what did we look at last time and how do I show them that information. So today it's really around saving time and keeping you organized on the investment portion of that. I think in the future, we're really excited to be trying to build up more abilities for advisors to have to address that holistic wealth problem because it's really going to be a combination of the advisor's personal judgment, knowledge of the client, as well as technology trying to get out of the way, I think more than enabling it, just trying to get out of the way to help them deliver that consistently. And so that's in the future of, of what we're thinking about. We're really excited to try to help kind of keep that trend going towards holistic wealth management. Yeah. I mean, that's the, especially my technology, uh, like more technophile, the best technology blends into the background, right? I, I shouldn't have to worry about making all this stuff happen. It should be a push a button to get something of value. So yeah, I, I definitely see specifically, I think going back to the way you've, I think spent a lot of time on just the UI aspects of this to make it very clean and user-friendly. I think clearly that it's, um, you've really tried to distill and simplify. So I, I see that being very much resonating with the story you just told about, about basically getting technology out of the way. So one of the bigger things going on around the world right now is a move towards even greater transparency and regulatory reform 
around any number of things. I mean, the U.S. has rugby eye. Canada's got CFR. Australia's got something else. The U.K., if they don't have something, they'll have something in a week or two because that's how fast they move. So speak to me. I mean, you're based largely in Canada. Speak to me about how that was seen as an opportunity or threat and how you basically adjusted or provided value around that change. Yeah, great, great question. So client focus reforms in Canada and RegBI um, in the US really represented a fundamental change in regulation for financial advisors. The amount of change required from a reporting perspective, from a record keeping perspective is really massive and shouldn't be underestimated. I think people had to make and will have to make gigantic changes to their day-to-day workflow just to be able to to do it. I mean, long story short, the way we look at CFR and RBI is it just requires you to show your work. And if you haven't been in a area where you've necessarily shown it, or now you have to be able to show more detailed level of work than you have in the past, that introduces a ton of new variables. So like how much work do I need to show? Um, How detailed do I need to be in the notes that I take? And you need to strike a balance between making sure you're hitting your regulatory requirements, as well as continuing to still grow your business. You know, we did a survey last year that just talked to advisors and this shouldn't be shocking to anybody, but about 50% of advisors said that admin work was the greatest sink or the greatest time sink in their day and the biggest threat to their workflow before client focus reforms. Once you add in these new regulations, that continues to just make that that much more painful to a degree. So our whole thought process was, and that same idea of like, easy user experience and getting technology out of the way was how do we make sure that we try to help you show your work as best you can. So prompting you to maybe save things, creating a records for you to be able to easily export so that you can show a regulator, here's all the work that I did for this client and trying to make sure that you didn't have to just go solely every time and and take notes for the sake of taking notes, but that they were going to be relevant to your business too. So the whole idea is to try to grow your business, but also try to meet these requirements was a really tough balance to strike. And so what we did is we saw the opportunity for us and we modified the platform, building out some CFR specific modules to allow for a lot of that work to be automated. So how do we help you keep records and how do we help you save information and make sure you have robust information to provide to a regulator in, in case you ever need to. Yeah, it's funny. I, uh, I've had quite a few interesting debates online, typically with anonymous Twitter accounts of advisors as to how much they dislike this because God forbid they actually publicly stand by their morals. But at the end of the day, I think this is both of these trends are so perfect, like, like so, so meaningful because the industry has evolved from one of, hey, my value proposition is order taking access to the market to one of advice, but our but our regulatory framework is lagged, right? So one guy argued with me previously online, like, oh, show me any profession that has to show its work. I'm like, every profession? Like <laughs> doctors have to take notes, otherwise they're liable. Accountants have to show records, otherwise they'll get sued. Like, engineers basically have to show blueprints and all the development work. Like, like every other profession has to show its work. But for decades, advisors got around with, oh, advisor, if a client wants to buy something, I'll just pull a name out of my butt, right? Like, I don't actually have to, you know, as long as I'm within the KYC confines, which, by the way, a lot of advisors just put as 100% high risk, I can do whatever I want, right? And it's wh- whoever's story I bought that week. This entire 
you know, as I, there's a, I did a podcast on CFR for, um, on my other podcast, uh, financial planning and business owners. And I'm like, what a novel idea that we have to make with know who our clients are, know what the product is to make a recommendation that's suitable for the two. But nevertheless, you're right. A big change to workflow, but not as big a change to people who were actually doing that kind of work before. That said, even if we're doing that kind of work before, I'm glad to have tools to expedite and show the work and show me the audit trail. So that, uh, makes a lot of sense. I'm sure that for you, that must've been an enormous opportunity because how many firms must've been like, okay, we need a solution. We need to, we need something to show that these people did their work. How do we do this? Yeah. I mean, I, I think you, you, you touched on a couple of really good trends there that I just want to comment on uh, and then ha- happy to get to that. I mean, if you think about, so I think client-focused forms generally will be good for the industry. I think it's it's good that people have it. I think once we get through the specificity of understanding like how much information is enough, I think that's the only part that the ambiguity in in records can can mean and, and different interpretations has a bit of uncertainty. And obviously the regulator kind of needs to see what people produce to be able to take a look at it and sort of also determine what is sufficient. So I think once we get past that, it'll be really good. And I, and I think you're right. Like many, many advisors are doing this information or doing this work today. Um, they're showing their work and then maybe they have to get slightly more specific to be able to show it's different points or, or different rationales here or there that that maybe were in their head, but but weren't necessarily written down before. And, and I think that it will end up being being a good thing um, as, as it kind of gets onboarded and then refined as with anything. The other thing that's really Absolutely. interesting to talk Oh, go ahead. I mean, and I'll hear one, one thing I want to ask you about because I've talked to other companies in the space. You know, there was there's a lot of ambiguity, right? Like these regulations were were basically said, like, hey, you gotta do this. But the this was just, hey, you gotta do this concept. There was nothing there on execution, right? There was nothing there on you need to basically document that this, you know, this is the methodology for how you do it. So I, I feel like we're in round one of execution right now, where everybody's kind of figured out what the um figured out what essentially they're going to try. And it's one of these things where I can just picture in a couple of years time, once the regulators look at best in class solutions, they're going to start holding everyone to that bar. Yeah. I think that's, that's probably pretty accurate. They're going to take a look at it. They, they, they put out some regulations and some with a level of ambiguity for sure on exactly how the execution needs to occur. Then when it goes into the review period, sort of next year, you're going to start to see the best solutions or the best approaches sort of floating to the top. And then I think, and yeah, you're right in a couple of years, they'll probably be holding people accountable to best in class sort of ways to approach this. And so that's why I think it's really important that you produce something that's that tries to be, you want to be really robust, but you also want to be able to balance the amount of administrative time it's going to take to have that super robust information. So trying to strike that balancing from our perspective is really, really uh, difficult. It's also was a really huge opportunity. You know, all of a sudden the entire like from a startup perspective, suddenly the entire market needs your product or a similar product to it. And so it was really a, a moment in the industry where all of a sudden it was just opportunities all over the place. And you kind of had to go and, and try to find people who, who there's a really immediate fit that were thinking forward, that were had an innovative tilt. And I think that that's something we were able to find this year, which really helped us with our, our own growth. And I, w- I would say too, it's been kind of interesting. There's two takes from startups in Canada serving financial services. Some who think that the banks are super closed off. And then our experience has actually been the opposite, that we found that the banks are really willing to, if we're able to go and find the appropriate group to go after, right? So maybe if you have a startup idea, trying to get a whole bank on board when you're a three-person firm likely won't work, probably rightly so. Well, I mean, yeah, I'll agree with you to a point. If you can find the right use case, you'll go. But 
I will say this much in over 200 episodes, three companies have sold into a bank in the first year of life. So it's not easy, but if you have, again, lightning in a bottle. If you have what they need or some sort of regulatory change and there's a gap and you have a potential to fill that, even if you're small, yeah, I think you're, um, you got something there. Yeah, I think it is difficult for sure. I think, I think there is for our, our, our thoughts, there's, we'd like to put credit. I think people put themselves out there and, and believed in us early. And I, I think we got really fortunate for that. And, and I felt like it was a good sort of innovative tilt. I think it will continue to take time as, as more successful adoptions of, of new technology from smaller firms happen. I think the industry is going to be shifting more and more to how can we work with smaller companies? So it's definitely not where it needs to be. I agree. I would say that we felt really uh, fortunate that we were able to run into those people early on and be able to bring on a number of the banks and 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 some of the big biggest wealth managers in the country pretty quickly because of the 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 trust they placed in us and that their willingness to see not just what the product was at that exact moment but what it would look like at the end of the year or what it looked like in in a couple of years. So that's something that I, I think is really interesting. I want to touch on just briefly at one of the points, which I think is a really neat shift happening in the industry, which is like the whole idea that you said, you know, early on, it used to be act, like it, the advisor's role used to be access to financial information and the markets. And now the regulation is sort of lagged. And I think it's really interesting because when we talk about like the whole idea around holistic wealth and why it's important, you know, early on, you can say, if you go back to the 80s, 90s, access to the stock market was a huge value prop for financial advisors. Then in the 2010s, 2000s and 2010s, when the online brokers showed up, like all of a sudden now everybody had the same sort of basic information and basic access. Then you got into the, the, the robos coming on board. And that's when people started to think, you know, the whole, all the shifting around, what's the future advice? What's it going to look like? How's that going to change? And things started to look a bit more uncertain. And then for the last three years, we've been in what we're classifying as the pandemonium and crypto era where you have all these new financial products that are hitting the market like right away that are easily accessible to retail customers and that aren't yet available through uh, financial advisors, for better or for worse. It's just an interesting how in the 80s, the advisors had all the access. And now you could argue that retail clients have slightly more access because they can now access these random securities like NFTs and crypto. And I think it's just yeah, really interesting. more access, a hell of a lot less protection, unfortunately. But you know, it yeah. is just it's about informed consent. So if you're doing that, just be well aware there is no regulator to go crying to when something goes wrong. No, it's exactly it, right? And like who who would have thought that we'd be in this space right now? You know, it's just a really interesting shift in in how the market's kind of changed around and and sort of flopped the other way now. So uh, I'm interested to see how that's going to play out over the next few years. And as regulation keeps going, I think, you know, as I mentioned, CFR, API are, are good advancements. Now it's like, we got to start to what's going to happen with this new set of uh, fintech products that are coming to light and how are, how are people going to continue to regulate and monitor those and potentially provide advice to them or say that we aren't like, it's just going to be neat to see how that's going to unfold. Yeah. It's uh, <laughs> if my Twitter streams are is an indication, the debate is already raging. But um, <laughs> as for as for one last closing thought on the regulators, I hope you sent them all gift baskets because those changes were probably the greatest thing you could have ever hoped for after you founded that company. So it uh, definitely helped. So before we end, I have three questions for you to just basically end on a positive note, get you thinking. The first one is, if you had one wish for something that you could change in your company or the industry as a whole, what would it be? I think... The narrative on how advisors should be continuing to focus on holistic wealth management, as well as just stressing the importance of advisors adopting technology to respond to disruption. 
Well, I don't think like recent disruptions have necessarily taken assets from the advice channel. I think they have changed client expectations around what it means to have an advisor and what sort of value proposition to expect from an advisor. And I think that people are going to be looking more and more for that broader-based advice as opposed to that holistic or traditional sort of investment management role. And I think that's just going to mirror a lot of the, the comments I, I made about how the industry is shifting now and, and how people are going to be looking to advisors. I think more and more, we definitely believe in the future of advice. We think there's tons of space for it. I think you're going to be looking at that sort of cyborg advisor or that technology-enabled advisor as the future. And I think that people stressing that more and more would be really important just to increase the adoption and make sure that advisors are really open to new tech. Well, that might take a generational shift, but it's happening. (laughs) Second one, what's been the biggest challenge in the company to where it is today? So early on, it was focus and fundraising. It was super tough to get the first investments, right? It felt like for me, at least took me longer than most people to raise money. You're in this weird spot where you're too early for venture firms who are the only people you can easily access, but you also might not know a ton of angels that you can just go and raise three, $400,000 from. I definitely credit Creative Destruction Lab, which was an accelerator. Started in Canada. It's now global. Really amazing. Started at U of T. And now it's a really amazing sort of national brand at, at a bunch of different universities for helping us break through that. They take a bunch of local entrepreneurs and angel investors, as well as venture firms, bring them into a program. It runs from September to June. And you as the as the company meet every four weeks and you go back every four weeks or six weeks, it is, sorry, to um, pitch your progress. And these angels and these VCs mentor you over that sprint period. And half the companies who start get cut. And it was really, really helpful to be able to get exposure to angels where we were able to finally pull out our first financing round and, and start to really shift the business. And if you think about um, the trajectory, that really changed. My only issue was just 14 months after I started the business that I got in. So it would have been nice if that had kind of happened sooner. And I think too, one thing that would be awesome actually to just on that note that I wanted to announce on this and podcast and be able to, to bring up with you, we're going to be launching in 2020, this really interesting program where, or sorry, 2022, where... Uh, I was going to correct your date there, but... <laughs> Yeah, by uh, as as everybody, 2020 disappeared for me too. So uh, there we go. But in 22, Canadian fintech startups will be able to submit like a three to five minute video to pitch their idea, and we're going to provide them with access or select companies with access to slightly used MacBook Pros, and then introductions to uh, some of our angel investors. So trying to help people from like that day one, really early, looking at sort of when I had first started it back in July 2017 what would have been really helpful for me would have been to be able to just have somebody listen and, and be able to get some exposure and a bit of feedback without any real cost to it or not bringing pipeline on investors. So we're really excited about that. I just encourage anybody to follow our LinkedIn profile as we go to announce that and provide the landing page for it. But we're looking to basically just help keep create though that Canadian fintech ecosystem growing uh, and really focusing on some of those day one people who may not have a lot of cash that they want to spend on on new tech and may want to get some introductions to some early stage uh, angels. Excellent. Well, that's, <laughs> I'm sure you'll have plenty of people take you up on that. That's the hope. So, and then last question for you, what excites you the most about what it is you're working on and keeps you getting up out of bed every morning to keep up and fighting the good fight? That's a really good question. Recently, what's excited me the most has been our traction and growth. We thought for a long time that we were right in our approach and getting validation from the market in that way has been incredibly exciting. I think 
the future of the business and how I think we can help transition the industry into a more tech-enabled industry is the thing that keeps me coming back for more and really excited about the future. That's, I think, at a really important... Wealth, to me at least, is an incredibly important industry. I think people think about wealth a lot more than many other things in their life. And a lot of people's big life goals are underpinned by wealth. You know, Sending your kids to school or buying a cottage or buying a house or retiring on time. These are really big milestones. Having children, these are really big milestones that are very important to people. And I think the wealth management industry plays a huge role in that. And it's a really important space. And so anything we can do to improve the industry and to provide tools for advisors to provide broader-based advice, um, tools for advisors to save time and spend more time with their clients. So they're spending less of that admin time and, and more time with their customers and, and building up, helping them meet those financial goals, I think for me is really, really important. And so long-term, that will always get me coming back. I love the space, love the industry, and I think it's really important. Thank you so much for your time. I appreciate it. And um, everyone should take the time to check you out. So thank you yet again. Thanks. So that was my interview with James Rockwood of Cap Intel. I uh, hope you enjoyed that. I hope you take the time to check them out. If you enjoyed this podcast, please leave a review on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, SoundCloud, Spotify, or whatever is at your podcast. Until next time, take care. This podcast was brought to you by Woodgate Financial, an award-winning financial planning firm catering to high net worth individuals and their families. To learn more, go to woodgate.com. You can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Play, or find more episodes at jasonperera.ca.